Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast, But What Would Law Think? Today we are going to talk about mental health and the stigma around it in the workplace. Today we have author of Life is a Four Letter uh, Word, um, Anders Alkild. If you want to say hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for accepting our invitation. We're, we're really, really um, looking forward to our discussion. And my usual co-host, Pragya. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Andy, for joining us on this podcast. Yeah. Absolutely fine. And today we will uns- try to answer three um, questions from Andy's perspective. And we can start whenever Pragya with our first question. Sure. So, Andy, our first question for you today is then, Um, every mental health discussion that we seem to have, you know, as a society is always surrounded with this stigma, you know, which makes it much harder to find a solution for it to these mental health issues, that is, especially in the workplace. So then, Andy, how do you think that we can eradicate this stigma and, you know, create a much safer environment for mental health discussions? So I think it's a really interesting point uh, it's something i've been kind of very passionate about and focusing on for pretty much two to three years of my life now mm-hmm. um the thing about stigma and or something that's taboo or anything like that is it's entirely driven by the society as a whole so yes. um and what it relies on is it relies on people believing it exists and if the society itself doesn't believe in a stigma doesn't believe a topic is taboo then actually it no longer is so for us to break the stigma uh so much we just need to ignore it um and what i mean by that is you're you are one person you have like whilst we 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 continually break this into physical health and mental health was actually it's just health it's just yeah. being healthy as a person and mm-hmm. if if we stop segregating it and just kind of say well you know what i'm i'm not healthy at present i'm ill at present or something like that then it actually makes the whole conversation a lot easier yeah you're right i completely agree with that it's it's just removing that sort of uh, idea from it that oh you know physical health is more important than mental health or not giving it the same level of importance so i i completely agree with you and um like one of the reasons this often so so but by background because the the listeners may not know is i'm an accountant and Mm -hmm. you're uh you're both aspiring lawyers and everything and one of the reasons there's a lot of perceived stigma about mental health within the professions accounting law uh, and other professional services firms is it's an internal thought that because these are professions that rely on our minds our thought processes how we think how we resolve uh problems how we uh create solutions because they are driven by our minds the perception is that by admitting an illness of the mind of any sort that means that you've admitted a failure in your job whereas actually it's not the case I've lived with depression for, uh, knowingly lived with it for six years, but actually, if you look back throughout my entire career, I've probably had depression throughout that time. 
I am still a successful accountant. I am still a finance director. Uh, it is just one of these things where, because we believe there's a problem, uh, we almost infer that problem and it becomes reality. Whereas if we just accept it as being, um, uh, you know what, I'm, I'm ill, I've got a cold. It's a cold of my mind, but I've got something like that. Or I have asthma of my mind or something like that. That's a condition you learn to live with and manage and mitigate. Um, I believe that's a much better way that we can approach it. And particularly within the professions where it is seen to be much, much worse. Yes. I mean, it is interesting that you brought the stigma to an individual spotlight. And you have mentioned in your book that people feel underqualified and underprepared for their job, which you have termed as imposter syndrome. Where does this individual problem lay within the stigma? Can you like elaborate on that just a little? Yes. So, so uh, in, imposter syndrome, uh, like uh, I don't believe it's an actual medical term or anything like that. But what what I mean by it is it's where people don't feel prepared that they feel like they're a they're a fake or a fraud and they're gonna get found out eventually or and something like that and where it comes from is because we live busy lives we live very very busy lives when we're working and so on and one of the things that happens is we are taught through our professional exams and everything like that of how to do something correct um, by the rules and everything like that yeah. however in practice things are done very differently like uh, as weird as it sounds you often fly by the seat of your pants when it comes to solving a problem and you end up not doing something quite the way you think it should be done it's natural this happens in business all the time mm-hmm. but what what that leads to is when you then come to solving these problems by yourself maybe with a junior and you say and then you're teaching them you go oh well I was taught to do it this way but in practice I did it this way which way is correct and so suddenly you start questioning yourself whereas actually you just need to solve the problems and and this gets kind of compounded throughout because you're working at such speed to deliver such good results that eventually you you can be promoted through to a position of kind of power as you will and suddenly you go oh you know what I don't actually know whether this is correct or not so I'm suddenly you start questioning yourself and and again someone will ask you a question you'll be like I don't actually know if this is right or not so you'll go away and you'll research and work harder and you'll do all those little bits and then you'll come back and be like oh well I still don't know whether I'm right or not because I've done something different this time to last time and this constant questioning not only of the work but of yourself is what leads to what a lot of people deem as imposter syndrome where you feel like a fake every day yeah it almost feels like this imposter syndrome is feeding the stigma off while the stigma is you know um kind of contributing to the imposter syndrome to enhance even more so it's really interesting to see you know give it as a name and actually you know um, find a solution for it yeah I, I mean what one of the one of the problems the the kind of stigma element of this that i talk about is where when you're feeling uncertain when you're feeling kind of 
not great about all this. You don't feel comfortable kind of speaking to other people. So if you were like, hey, I'm not sure this is the right way to do it. Am I doing this correctly? Would you actually go up to your boss who you've been working with for three, five years and ask them something about something really simple that you should have learned a long time ago, but actually suddenly you're like, I should have learned this back then, but I don't understand. If I ask now, they're going to think I'm an idiot or or something like that. And, and that is how it kind of all compounds because we're never we never give ourselves the time to actually process the information we're working through and that we're learning and one of the one of the most important things through business and through life in general is just learning as you go and kind of absorbing the information yeah no you're you're so right Andy and the learning process never stops but you know as you mentioned because people are now um they're getting promoted they're going up into these higher positions they're almost scared to ask questions because now they're the one who is supposed to be with all the answers and and i guess that's where that feeling of you know being an imposter so to say comes from so then my my question to you andy is and finally how do you think that we could resolve such issues because i'm sure they're coming up you know in in workplaces across professions um different sort of leadership positions wherever you are you are faced with this sort of sort of issue you know and and the workplace environment a corporate environment is as such where people are so kept to themselves that it becomes almost impossible to ask for help so i mean that that this is a big question how do you solve this problem um that there are lots of different facets to it the the first one is um i mean actually i i wrote a really interesting piece uh and I'm going to deep dive on this, okay? I just have to talk about it because um, people will find it fascinating. <laughs> so um, I wrote a piece on this uh, that actually brings in uh, game theory. So we start with our baseline assumption that people aren't comfortable talking or saying they need help. This is this is kind of the, the baseline issue. And yeah. we, can see, we can see this in practice. Um, so that's problem one. Um, Situation two, the leadership teams within organisations aren't hearing the the information from people because no one's sharing it. So they don't have perfect information to make a decision. Um, And what that means is they can't allocate resources uh, appropriately. I have spoken with partners at law firms, accounting firms, uh, banks, private equity houses, all of which, and all of them say the same thing. We absolutely 100% care about our people mental health matters and we want to give them the support they need but we're not hearing the information from them so we can't and so what happens is they do that they do what they can they know it's important they know they know it's a big deal but um they go into what i refer to as the episode of house where they uh, look at kind of salt, they, they look at treating the symptoms rather than uh, treating the underlying problem. Because let's be honest, the underlying problem in anything to do with work is there's not enough people, there's not enough money, or there's not enough time. But no one's going to actually face into that problem anytime soon. 
Yeah. So they they do they do things that just don't address it. So they say, oh, um, we're going to go for a walk at lunchtime, uh, and that'll help. Or we've hired a yoga teacher to do a to do a yoga session after work. Or they'll oh, get um, or they'll get a, a crappy little public speaker like me to come in and motivate <laughs> them. Um, but but that further exacerbates the problem because then the people are like. We don't understand the real problem that there's not enough money, not enough people, or not enough time. Um, so why on earth would I ever tell you what's going on with me? And we end up back into the same position. So we end up in this causality loop. And what I said is, this is the prisoner's dilemma. This is the iterated prisoner's dilemma. Uh, and uh, uh, essentially, this is a this is a, a well-known kind of logic puzzle. Uh, that exemplifies game theory, as in whether you should cooperate or uh, compete with with your um, w- with a partner, and and p- people kind of looked at me and went, "What on earth are you on about?" And I was like, "Well, hold on, because the iterated prisoner's dilemma has competitions to kind of solve it as best as possible, and if we can look at how." the best algorithms solve these problems, then we can actually look at how we can best build a, a cooperation and trusting, trust-based environment for all our people. And there's four really simple criteria that, that, that all successful algorithms kind of meet when it comes to the prisoner's dilemma or iterated prisoner's dilemma. Um, the first one, be kind. And what this means is we need to move from a place of not trusting each other to trusting each other as the implicit baseline. So people should speak openly. Employers should um, provide resource. There should be a default where any person that needs it can uh, receive whatever support they need to, um, to look after their health. No, I'm not saying mental health, health. That people are looked after by default. Yes. Now the second one is is the scary one that people are like. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. And it's called um, it's called retaliatory. Um, and what that means is, if someone breaks trust, they get punished for it. And this doesn't have to be serious. Like it sounds bad, but yeah. what it really means is, if if an employer kind of doesn't look after someone or doesn't care about someone you you call them out on it if an employee lies about needing a day to look after themselves to just go off on holiday they get disciplined for it stuff that is like look we're giving you all this stuff to support you don't take the piss basically um so so it's not it sounds bad, but it actually isn't. It's kind of what you'd expect from it. Yeah, it sounds very um, confrontational. Yeah, the, the the one that counters it is forgiving. So again, environments need to be forgiving. And what this means is um, even if there has been a breach of trust, eventually all parties will defer back to being trusting. So if someone has... Um, breach trust if an employer has done something that has negatively affected the health of an employee um, they've been called out on it they've kind of made up their mistakes and employees will defer to trusting them again again exactly what you'd want you go back to the kind environment and the final one and this is one of the most important 
is it's independent. And what this means is it doesn't score keep. So if one person ends off better than the other, you, it doesn't matter. You're not trying to win the game as an individual. You are trying to win the game as a team. So what that means is employees shouldn't worry about management kind of going on holiday or anything like that. And management shouldn't worry about providing resource to some employees that need more help than others. And what's happened in the past is in the past and you shouldn't kind of hold that against each other. Um, so a prime example of this is um, in kind of older older organizations, the leadership goes, well, it was hard in my day, it should be hard for them now. Well, actually, no, the world is different now. It should be as kind as it can be to everyone involved. And if you can build your environments you and cultures using these as kind of your central yeah. um, your central beliefs, you end up in a far more trusting environment and a much healthier environment that will last for longer, people will care about more, and they'll want to be a part of. So how do we break the stigma? <laughs> we, we build environments. We build an environment that supports people that need support and helps people thrive who want to thrive and so yeah. on. Yeah. No, Andy, I think you are spot on with this. And the four uh, sort of keys you mentioned, you know, I think uh, like they serve as a, a good combination of all these four elements can greatly help, you know, a workplace environment to foster a much more, um, as you mentioned again, trustworthy, you know, sort of sphere for employees to come and share their concerns, regard, be it, even if it's not regarding their health, you know, even if they're just general workplace concerns, I feel like because of the fear that um, employees hold uh, regarding this, as we've previously discussed, you know, these things kind of help them, encourage them and really create a, a, a deeper connection between um these different people what do you think Nasha? no i think it's um i mean i am i mean obviously coronavirus and everything it's a horrible thing the pandemic is going on but thanks to you know online zoom and some sort of you know other online applications it has been highlighted um the mental health issue and you know people started to acknowledge it more so i think you know, I have huge faith in the next generation and in our generation to actually, you know, see the, you know, stop with the segregation between yeah. physical health and mental health and, you know, actually, actually combine them and see them one health and not undermine any person's, you know, feelings or you know, um, actual mental health status. So, I mean, I'm I'm very positive about it for the future. But thank you so much for this discussion, Andy. Um, it has been absolutely um, lovely and it was very insightful. And um, for the Definitely. next... Um, yeah, it, it, was it was lovely. And for the next part, we will be talking about the legal part of it and the legal reform we can come on about. Thank you, Andy, for joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Just as a kind of mention for anyone uh, that's interested, the article I wrote was published on the HR Director uh, and it was called The Professional's Dilemma, uh, I, named after the prisoner's dilemma. Um, you can find links to it on my website at andysolkel.com as well as references to my book and the talks that I give there. So thank for you sure. very much for having me here. 
we'll yeah, everything all of this yeah. in the description we'll include a link to Andy's website and uh, where you can check out his books and articles as well so again Andy thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to speaking with you soon yep thank you very much for having me take care everyone you too bye bye thank you so much Andy on that very enriching chat about mental health in the workplace. Now, Nasha and I will discuss the legal framework surrounding mental health in the UK and changes that have been brought about due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the primary legislation surrounding mental health is, well, the Mental Health Act. In October 2017, the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, announced for an independent review of this act to address the rising detentions of people, the racial disparity in the Act, and the use of the Act, and the concerns regarding it about human rights and dignity. Now, the government then committed to introducing a legislation to allow people to nominate a person of their choice to be involved in decisions about their care and to introduce advanced choice documents which basically say that people can set out their wishes and fu- about future care and treatment. Now, at first instance, this just goes to show that the review of this act seeks to give people much more autonomy in making these fundamental decisions for themselves later in life when they are no longer in a place to do so. These advanced choice documents will allow them to set forth their wishes rather than having someone else dictate their life for them. Now, the review set out some recommendations, you know, that they felt could be changed with the Mental Health Act. And obviously, the first being the advanced choice documents. And other uh, recommendations included a statutory care and treatment plan to include people's wishes about uh, and earlier access to a second opinion and a rights to appeal against treatment. It also allows for a choice of a friend or a family member who has a role in decisions about sectioning and care by making the current nearest relative role a nominated person that you can choose yourself. So it's not restricted anymore. It's basically it's up to the person and they can make their choice as they please. Another one of the recommendations was to to allow for a systematic approach to improving how mental health services respond to their local population's ethnic and cultural backgrounds. So as previously mentioned, this act is now broadening its scope to allow for different racial groups in the UK, to allow for greater autonomy for patients, and in general we can see a strive, um, you know, a greater strive by the government to improve the Mental Health Act to allow for these changes, um, you know, to allow for the changes in society. On to you, Nasha. In 2018, Mental Health Foundation has opened a window of opportunity to improve public mental health. As Pragya has mentioned, in the past few years, this window of opportunity has brought about some impressive progress in the review of the Mental Health Health Act, a long-term plan for our beloved NHS, a prevention green paper from the government, and most importantly, it initiated a wider conversation about mental health like our special guest Andy, who takes a part in. However, 
It is important to translate the pre-COVID improvements to our now reality. Everyone is scared of an enduring pandemic, rightly so, and strapped within their boxes of houses, feeling trapped. Like we mentioned previously, this has highlighted the importance of mental health more than ever. We as victims of this pandemic, as students, as professionals, as frontline workers, deserve a support from the government and deserve a more progressive change within the law. Unfortunately, instead of seeing a progressive change, we have endured the abolition of public health England during a pandemic. This, has, this is very threatening to our national mental health providers and it undermines the health care that we need in such emergence. As Mental Health Foundation stated, it is not acceptable to lose the harm of the national public mental health function without a clear replacement. As a responsible member of the society, we must push for a better change for ourselves, for the next generation. As a responsible member of the society, we must not let go of the societal change that we have mentioned earlier with Andy become the law. Thank you, our listeners, for listening to us and participating in this such vital conversation. We will leave the link of Andy's book where you can buy it from and his website. If you are struggling with depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, give this book a go because you should know that you are not alone and you can do this and you can survive this. We will see you in the next episode of But What Would Law Think? Now have a good weekend.